I pray that you had a nice Thanksgiving and that you enjoyed one of the 60 million turkeys consumed by Americans on Thursday. Some people have Christmas as their most wonderful time of the year, but my favorite holiday is Thanksgiving. Anybody else? Okay, all right, two of us. Um, some people just kind of see Thanksgiving as, as the start of, our, of the Christmas season. And Christmas is special too. I love Christmas as we celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But I love the spirit behind Thanksgiving. I love the story of the first Thanksgiving. And because of that intentional time in which we can give thanks to the Lord for his many blessings in our lives, in the context of family and friends and, of course, great food. A few weeks ago, we were at the beginning of chapter 4 in the book of Luke. And right now, we are wrapping up chapter 4 in the gospel of Luke. If you remember, at the beginning of this chapter, Christ was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And Christ stood strong against the temptation. And that was a part of preparing him for his public ministry, which we saw last Sunday. And what better place to start his ministry than going to his home turf, going home to good old Nazareth. And there's nothing like going home. College students going home for Thanksgiving in their very first semester, they know what that feels like. And you can imagine Jesus perhaps walking down memory lane, walking past his childhood home where he had memories of his mother picking him up when he scraped his knee. Memories of his father teaching him how to work with wood in his carpenter's shop. And then maybe Jesus decides to cruise past the old Hebrew high school. I don't know if any of that took place, but it's fun to imagine. We do know that he goes over to the church. And he walks into the synagogue, the place of worship. And no doubt the people there in his hometown would have been excited to see their hometown boy, who's now a grown man. And it would have been natural for Jesus to stand and read a passage of Scripture. And the Scripture that Jesus read, as we saw last week, was Isaiah 61, which points to Messiah. In the synagogue, as our guest speaker, Walt McCord, said last week, you stood to read, but then you sat down to teach. And after reading, Jesus sits down. And simply says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. It was the first mic drop in history. And the people were first amazed and very complimentary. And they're filled with wonder. And they think, wow, who is this? This is, this is our hometown kid, our great Hebrew hope. And they're mesmerized by the words that are falling from this 30-year-old's lips. But then they become skeptical and say things like, who is he 
to say such things. And they begin to question the authority by which Jesus could say these words. I mean, isn't this Joseph's boy? We watched this kid grow up. How could he be the Messiah? And their wonder and amazement turns to rage when Jesus mentions two occurrences from the Old Testament. When God's prophets, Elijah and Elisha, ministered God's grace, not to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles because of the Jews' unbelief. And this mention and this focus on the Gentiles' sins this Jewish crowd into a jealous frenzy. And they run this hometown boy, Jesus, out of town to a cliff, and they're about ready to throw him over the edge when Jesus very simply just walks through the crowd and out of town. This recap from last week gives us a preview of what's to come for Christ. One writer refers to his rejection in Nazareth as a dress rehearsal for his passion to come, that final week of his suffering and his rejection leading up to the cross. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And then in Luke 4, 31, we read that Jesus came down to Capernaum. And as Jesus enters Capernaum, in our passage today, he does just what he did in Nazareth. He first goes into the synagogue to teach. Can we pray for a moment? Father God, we read in Psalm 95, let us sing for joy. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us become, come before your presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to you with psalms. And Father, I pray that you would use your word in a mighty way to encourage us, to exhort us, to challenge us, and most of all, to give us a deeper longing and hunger for you and your righteousness. Father, would you help us to be faithful to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the power and the authority that we see on display here in Luke chapter 4. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 4, 31. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In contrast to those who rejected him in Nazareth, the folks in Capernaum, they recognize Christ's authority. And they saw that he had great authority and power, and first of all, his speech. When he started teaching in verse 15, it says that he was praised by all. And that initial positive feedback was not the result of a, of a flashy preaching style or because Jesus had a, a trendy hipster look about him. And he wasn't preaching a, a self-help, feel-good kind of message that didn't step on anybody's toes. 
No, his message was one of great authority from the Father. Verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. So not only do his words, his speech have great power and authority, but we also see Christ's power and authority over evil spirits as well. Jesus had just delivered an old-fashioned whooping on the devil in the wilderness for 40 days. And the very thing that the devil was tempting Jesus with, authority, it's now resting with Jesus. And Jesus is putting the demons on notice that they are once again going to be on the losing end. And Jesus purposed to destroy their work. And the demons cry out, what do you want with us, Jesus? We know who you are. We know what you're about. Even the demons recognize Christ's power and authority. And they recognize his divinity and his identity. And they call him by name, Jesus of Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are the Holy One of God. They knew who he was, unlike the Pharisees and those who had rejected Christ. We read in James 2.19 that even the demons believed in Jesus and shuddered because of it. The demons testified to Christ's divine character and his messianic identity. And Jesus rebukes the demon by giving two commands, be quiet and come out of him. And the demon threw the man down in the midst of all the people. And the demon came out of the man without hurting him. And this was all taking place in the middle of church. That would have been a a memorable worship service. But then we read in verse 36. And amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with, here it is again, Authority and power. He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. And this is just the beginning of Christ's ministry, but these stories are beginning to catch like wildfire and spread throughout all of the surrounding areas. Verse 38. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and she immediately got up and waited on them. So we've seen authority and power in his speech, authority and power over evil spirits, and now we see Christ's authority and power over disease and sickness. Jesus left the synagogue. He goes over to Simon's or or Peter's house. 
And it's not until our next chapter, chapter 5, when Jesus officially calls the disciples, uh, and Peter and, 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 the, and James and John were among the first to be called. But here in chapter 4, Jesus already knew Peter, and he stops in for a visit, or perhaps Peter invited him over, because his mother-in-law is suffering from a high fever. When we first think of Peter, we probably don't think of him as a married man. But we see he had a wife, a mother-in-law. We don't think of him, perhaps, with a family. But remembering that should increase our respect for the sacrifice that these men are about to make in chapter 5. When Jesus calls them to follow him, we see in the parallel passage in Matthew 4.20, it says they immediately dropped their nets and followed him. Not only do they leave behind their jobs, their source of income, their livelihood, but their wives and their families to be living out on the road without a home, being discipled by Jesus for three years. And Peter didn't jump at the chance to get out of the house and to be with the fellows because he had a crazy mother-in-law. You know, there's no mother-in-law joke here. Because we see in verse 39 that this woman was a dear servant of the Lord. And Peter and the family are deeply concerned about her. And they ask Jesus to help her. My mother passed away five years ago, and I still miss her every day. And it's, it's uh, days like Mother's Day, you know, when I, when I can't call her on the phone, or days like Thanksgiving in which I can't visit with her, those holidays that she made so special for us growing up. But I thank God for my mother-in-law, Kara's mom, who has filled that role so beautifully in my life. And served as a great source of spiritual encouragement and prayer for me. She might be hearing this message online, so I better put in a good word for her. Actually, I don't have to. I get to. I get to say that I have an amazing mother-in-law. And husbands, I think that is one of the greatest ways we can honor our wives. By never speaking a negative word about your in-laws. Showing them honor, showing them respect, showing them love as the ones who raise your wife that you now so greatly cherish. Dr. Luke says in in Luke 4.39 that Jesus is standing over Peter's mother-in-law like a doctor would a patient indicating that Christ is the great physician. And just like Christ rebuked the demon in verse 35, he rebukes the sickness in verse 39. And the fever leaves her, not just to where she's healed but feeling a little weak, as is normally the case when a fever leaves us. No, it says that she immediately got up and began to serve Jesus and the others. What a special woman. And after these two specific healings of a man and a woman, 
we see that Jesus then performs a number of other general healings. Verses 40 through 41. <clears throat> While the sun was setting, all those who had, who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. After sundown, after the Sabbath was over, it would have then been acceptable for the Jewish people to carry the sick, because they didn't want to be unclean. So after the Sabbath was over, they could then carry the sick, and they come to Peter's house for Jesus to heal. And, and just like in verse 35, he rebukes the demons, he tell them, tells them to be quiet, and why did he tell them to be quiet? He didn't come to earth so that just demons would acknowledge him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. He wanted men and women to, boys and girls, to acknowledge him as Lord and Messiah. And some of the people were starting to get a little carried away by these, these miracles and these healings. But as we see throughout Luke, Christ wanted them to know that the healings, the miracles were secondary to his primary teaching ministry. His miracles served just to authenticate his message and his identity as Messiah. So we've seen that Jesus had authority in his speech over evil spirits, over sickness, and his authority and power and his purpose came from seclusion with the Father. Verse 42. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for him. We see just a few verses later in Luke 5, verse 16, that Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness to pray. Several times throughout the Gospels, we see the crowds are looking for Jesus. Usually it's after a miracle. Like in Mark chapter 6, Jesus had just fed the 5,000 and the people are looking for him. Probably these were more fans than true followers. And they're wanting more food, more healing, more miracles. But in Mark 6, Christ sends the crowds away, and then he tells the disciples, I'll catch up with you all later. Because he knew the importance of getting away to be with the Father, to reconnect with him. That was the source of the power and the authority. Sometimes it was early in the morning, Mark 1, or in the evening, Matthew 14, where Jesus goes out to the mountain alone, to pray, or in Luke 6, where he spends the night in prayer to God. Verse 42 continues. And the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. 
for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. We see a contrast from last week. The people in Nazareth, they wanted Jesus to leave. But now in Capernaum, the people are begging him to stay. But it was Christ's mission to reach as many people as possible with the message of the kingdom of God, the message of the gospel. It wasn't the miracles that he wanted the people to believe in, but Christ himself, his death, his resurrection, and the eternal life to come if we place our faith in Christ alone. In terms of life application, where do we find power and authority in our words? We find power in our words through the word of God. In our Black Friday culture, many just let Thanksgiving just pass by without any mention of its spiritual roots. Last month on October the 31st, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation when men like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli said that the word of God, not the church, not a church leader, but the word of God serves as the final authority in the life of a believer. And then about 80 years later, in England, in the year 1600, there was an orphan boy at the age of 12 who became discontented with the Church of England, the Anglican Church. So he started attending, attending another church in a nearby small village. And these people were a spinoff from the Puritans, and they called themselves separatists because they wanted to separate from the Church of England. And within 20 years, because of persecution from the King of England, James I, this group, the separatists, they go to Holland, and they're there for 10 years. And then they say, let's start totally fresh. Let's go to the new world. And they land, and they settle eventually in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And they would soon be led by this orphan boy who is now 32 years old, William Bradford. And those 102 passengers who made that dangerous trek across the Atlantic on the Mayflower in 1620, of those passengers, only 50 would survive, less than half. They made it through the first winter. Spring comes, and with the help of Samoset and Squanto, they, they learn how to plant corn and other crops. And then that next fall, they have their first harvest, their first Thanksgiving feast with 90 Native Americans in attendance. These pilgrims who had sought to worship God freely and to be free from religious persecution They brought from England the greatest, the best of the Reformation to the beachhead of America, establishing a Christian worldview that would settle at the heart of this new nation. It's their sacrifice, it's their faith and their commitment to the word of God that we should celebrate on Thanksgiving. 
Second, where do we find authority and power when we're dealing with evil, when we're dealing with oppression? We find it through a dependence upon the Spirit of God, a dependence upon God's Spirit. I like how the English preacher Charles Spurgeon emphasizes the role of the Spirit in all things. All that the believer has must come from Christ, but it comes solely through the channel of the Spirit of grace. As all blessings flow to you through the Spirit, so also no good thing can come out of you in thought, in worship, or act apart from the sanctifying work of the same Spirit. Do you desire to speak for Jesus? How can you unless the Holy Spirit touches your tongue? Do you desire to pray? How can you unless the Spirit makes intercession for you? Would you be holy? Would you imitate Christ? You cannot without the Spirit. I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can't do nothing. If the Holy Spirit indeed be so mighty, let us attempt nothing without him. Let us begin no project, carry on no enterprise, and conclude no transaction without first seeking his blessing. Let us depend on him alone. How do we serve the hurting? How do we serve the needy like Jesus did? By relying on the compassion of Christ. When we see the needy, when we see the sick, we don't just say, good luck with that, and stand at a distance. No. We engage them. Christ could have very easily spoken a word of healing from a distance, and sometimes he did do that, but most often he was right up in the mess of people's issues and their pain and their suffering. We see in Matthew's account of this this passage of Peter's mother-in-law, it said he touched her hand. And then in Luke 440, Jesus was laying hands on each one of them. When I was in Guatemala a few weeks ago with my daughter Josie, we walked into the house of a woman named Segunda. I think we have a picture of Segunda. Here she is on her bed. Segunda had left an infection in her foot go unchecked for weeks before we got there. Until finally, some neighbors took her to the hospital. And by then, it was too late. And she had to lose her leg from the thigh down. And we walked into her shanty house. There was no front door. The corrugated metal walls were not sealed in any way. So flies are everywhere in her home and around her bed and around this woman. And I think back to this passage. And I sat down on the edge of her bed, and I reached down, I grab her hand, and I pull her up so I could just see Segunda face to face. And she pulls back her sheet to reveal where her left leg had once been. And her adult son comes in, and he sits down there on the ground next to the bed, and the woman begins to tell us in Spanish how the, the, the son is addicted to drugs. And she's worried that when we leave, he's going to take that bag of food and the Bible that we leave her and with his friends steal it and sell it for more drugs. This kind of place sticks with you. But we share words of hope, words of love, words from Scripture. And although it's hard to walk into a place like that, it's harder to leave not knowing what's to come for a woman like Segunda. Her name means second. But it's my prayer that that Christ would be first in her life, in the life of her son. 
God calls us simply just to reach out and touch those that are hurting and needy, minister the love of Christ to them. And finally, how do we discover God's plan, God's vision for our lives? We do so through a commitment to prayer. As the author Patrick Morley writes, to be a truly successful person in public requires you to take responsibility for your private life, your relationship with your wife, your children, your health, and your walk with God. And that comes through a commitment to pray. Habakkuk 2.1 says, I will climb up into my watchtower. This is the prophet Habakkuk saying, I'm going to get alone in order to be with God. If we are to fulfill God's vision, God's plan for our lives, then we must get away to be in tune with his voice speaking to us. Something that we do uh, every November is we put a little blessings jar on the dinner table. And uh, after dinner, we have the kids write down something that they are thankful for, and they can put it in the jar, and, and by the end of the month, it starts filling up. And we, you know, we got things like horses, okay? That's a good thing to be thankful for. Jesus, family. But oftentimes, we would rather have a complaint cup, wouldn't we? Man, I wish this situation in my life would be different. And I wish that person would just change. Sometimes we just have these complaints and these gripes. But as believers, we must see that the blessings jar overflows and not have as many complaints in the complaint cup. That should be the mark of a believer, a spirit of contentment, a spirit of thanksgiving. I'm thankful for faith. I'm thankful for my wife. I'm thankful for my family. And I thank God every day for each one of you. Dear saints, that means so much to me. Moments like these in which we can spend together in worship, spend together in God's word, that's what I'm thankful for. But I'm thankful most of all for Christ, most of all for the gospel, the good news from 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He rose again to give us everlasting life. And that's required, all that's required for us is to simply believe. To simply believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Come to Christ by faith alone. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would give us great power, that you would give us great authority as we boldly proclaim the truth of the gospel. Help us to to, depend on your spirit when we face trials, when we face persecution from the enemy. Give us the love and the compassionate touch of Christ when we see people hurting 
and in need, would we imitate Christ? Give us the discipline to get alone with you, Father, each and every day. For that is where we find our strength. That is where we find power, through our time in worship, our time in prayer. And Father, I thank you for each person gathered here. I thank you for their families. I thank you for their friendship. I thank you for their partnership in the gospel and in life. Father, we give thanks to you this day. Would we continue with that spirit as we enter the Christmas season? Would we elevate Christ above all else? We pray that Christ alone would fill our time, fill our hearts this season. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.